believe that running is such a great way to challenge us and um, and to, to, to add that um, difficulty to our life in a very controlled way so that we can deal with challenge and adversity. And I love that. I love getting to the crux of a workout. I go out hard in, in races and workouts because I want to suffer early on so I can find ways to get through it. And to me, it's always been a game, like just this playful pursuit of seeing how I can, how badly I can hurt and then what tools I can learn to get through it. When I can handle these challenges and running and continue working it, you know, it's not like you have to keep practicing positivity and getting the best out of yourself. That if I can do that in running continuously, then when something shows up in life, I feel like it's a breeze to get through it. What's up, everyone? It's your host, Mario Fraioli. I had an incredible conversation with Canadian mountain athlete Adam Campbell last Thursday night at the inaugural Mammoth Trail Fest that I had hoped to share with you here this week. But due to some recording issues at the venue, the audio is unusable, unfortunately, which is a huge bummer. I'm hoping that I can transcribe that conversation to text so that eventually you'll be able to read it in the Morning Shakeout email newsletter, which if you're not subscribed to it yet, Get on that now at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. So in lieu of a new episode, I'm going to reshare a conversation that I had in 2018 with Dina Castor, which I recorded the last time that I was visiting Mammoth Lakes, California. I want to bring this one back not only because I was in Mammoth this past weekend, but because Dina just ran 245.12 at the Berlin Marathon at the age of 49, no less, to earn the Abbott World Marathon Majors six-star medal for completing all six marathon majors. Berlin, London, New York, Chicago, Boston, and Tokyo. I look back fondly at this chat from a few years back, which we recorded over a glass of wine at our kitchen table. In it, we covered a lot of topics from the importance of surrounding yourself with a great team, both in running and in life, to using disappointment as a means to fuel the next big breakthrough. We also discussed how Coach Joe V. Hill influenced her and helped shape her life philosophy, how training for and racing cross-country feeds her soul and helps her become a better racer on the track and on the roads, and so, so much more. Before we get into it, a big thank you to New Balance for helping make this episode possible. Let me tell you about the new FreshFoamX More V4. I've been logging miles in this shoe for the past month or so, and it's quickly become a favorite for recovery runs on the road. It's packed with plenty of plush foam underfoot, making it a perfect option for when I'm feeling a little beat up and want some extra protection between my foot and the road. The upper fits like a glove and will accommodate a wide variety of foot types. The craziest thing about this shoe, however, is how responsive it is for how much cushion is packed into it. It's rather lively, which is rare for a max cushion shoe, and I really love how it rides. The Fresh Foam X More V4 is available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your favorite run specialty retail store. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder, my favorite sunglasses for running, driving, walking the dog, and pretty much everything else that I do outside. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they won't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. 
Best of all, they're super fun. I am personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. Gooders are also super affordable, with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. So, if you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a few pairs of Gooders, and head over to gooder.com slash Mario, and use the code MARIO15 to get free shipping on your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario, and use the code M-A-R-I-O-1-5 to get free shipping on your next order. And remember, your face will thank you. Okay, that's it for the introduction. Please enjoy this rerun episode from June 2018 with Dina Castor and learn how one of America's greatest distance runners thinks about and approaches her craft. Caster, thank you so much for having me into your home and welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure having you here. It's great to be here in Mammoth Lakes. I've never been. Um, how long has this been home for you now? Um, almost 18 years. 18 We've lived years. in the same house too. It's gone. It's gotten a little bit of love over the years with some remodeling, but um, but we we love it here. All seasons. Um, I feel like when it's winter time, we drive down the mountain a little bit and those are trails we get to experience only in winter time. Mm-hmm. And then in the summer, the back country opens up to us and we have a a whole new set of trails to explore on. So it's great. And we're at about what, 8,000 feet just shy? 8,050 feet right here so, in, in the dining room. On the nose. What brought you to Mammoth Lakes, California 18 years ago? Um, so Coach V Hill and Bob Larson, who's the coach of Meb Kifleski, the great Meb Kifleski, are we supposed to call him... Some, um, I think that adjective is yeah, appropriate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the great Meb Kofleski. Um, Those two coaches wanted to create a, a running group here in Mammoth Lakes. They chose Mammoth Lakes because Bob Larson used to bring his UCLA team up. And, um, and so they called different runners from around the country, the best of the best at that time, Abdi Abdirahman, who's still running so strong yeah. after all these years. Amy Rudolph, who was the 5,000 American record holder at one point. Right. Mark Carroll's her. Yes. They, I yes. think they're in, well, they were in Providence and now they're in Auburn, I think. Um, uh, they And then now they are, they did go to Auburn and now they are in Des Moines, Iowa. Okay. So they've so bounced around a they bit. Have, okay. They have bounced around, but they're both coaching and enjoying it a lot there. Uh, okay. So we just got the best athletes around the country. We were trying to model this training facility um, after the East Africans that trained in groups and at a high altitude. So we took those two factors and created a group here to try to have the best of the of the distance running crew from probably 3,000 all the way up to the marathon here training together pushing each other and it with the goal of earning an Olympic medal and four years after starting the group here Meb and I were able to earn those medals but we also had a lot of in that time national champions and um, and American record holder, holders at various distances so it ended up being an amazing project and uh, it got passed on from those coaches to Terrence Mahan mm-hmm. and um, and now my husband Andrew Castor. How did it work initially with you know all of these athletes coming in who 
we're focusing on on different events and you have a couple different coaches in there like what was the training setup like how often were you training together and and what would like a typical workout day look like yeah we trained together every single every single day and the only thing we did on our own were evening runs but we met up for evening runs a lot of the time just because they were more casual and more conversational than mm-hmm. some of our harder sessions and i think we were able to work together and we still use the philosophy um and run this way now so many years later is that in in training we are all doing some type of of similar work on a certain day it's mm. speed work another day it's it's extending your aerobic base and um and threshold running so we we just condense it a little bit and really set up almost like um what are those races called where they're like equalizers? Okay. So the slower women would go out first and you'd stagger the next runner and the next runner 30 seconds later, a few minutes later, and we're basically just chasing each other down the road. So it's really fun to train that way. That's a Joe Hill thing, right? You did yeah. that when you were in Alamosa. In Colorado also. Yeah, yeah. And they would sort of send you out and the guys would try to chase yeah, you Yeah, and I think it makes the competition a little playful mm-hmm. among among um the teammates, but then it gets you like fired up and excited. Like I got to get that, that girl in front of me and fend off Meb who's coming from behind and that'll keep um, you on your toes. Yeah. And it just creates this like almost like a race energy. Yeah. It's, um, trying to get a little similar energy out of, out of a workout and get the best out of you. And so we have loved training like that. And so when we get to races, the Jacksonville 15 K, yep. um, I think still has an equalizer component to it. Maybe they got rid of it. I, I, I don't know. I remember the LA marathon had one. Yeah. Yes, yes. They may still have it, but I've seen that. The LA Marathon stopped doing it, but okay. I think Jacksonville still does it. It's usually the 15K national championships mm-hmm. on the on the roads. And I remember doing the same thing that I that I do to Meb at practice, turning around to the guys right before I'm ready to start and say, catch me if you can, and then bolts off. And I remember doing it on the start of that race and just to get a little chuckle out of them before we before we got started. So it's just a fun way to train and it does emulate races so that when you get to the start line, of your competition, it's you kind of know you've been through this Comes before. Comes naturally, to yeah, you. yeah. How has the Mammoth Track Club evolved over the last eighteen years? You just alluded to, you know, transition of coaches as Coach Hill retired, then onto Terrence and Terrence to, to yeah. Andrew. How else has the club evolved? Um, so I think it's um, evolved in a lot of ways because Andrew, when we moved here eighteen years ago, started a general, um, like an adult running club here. And on top of that, um, events, we have a, a 4th of July Freedom Mile. We have a turkey trot on Thanksgiving. And now we have um, adult practices and youth practices. So it's definitely been more all-encompassing. As far as our professional athletes are concerned, it's definitely changed as the coaches have mm-hmm. have moved on from Coach Hill, who's mostly 5, 10K marathon specific, went into Terrence's hands and Terrence made it more of a middle distance group, was really into the mile and explosive gym work. And, um, and so definitely a different philosophy from, from Coach Hill, and then got into, to Andrew's hands, who was kind of raised with a similar philosophy as Coach Hill running wise. And it's become more of a, um, 
more of a half marathon marathon group, but now we're starting with some of the recruiting going on. We're starting to get more track oriented people. Reed Buchanan is having a great season. Yeah, um, season. Ran a great 5K at the at U.S. Nationals and um, sub four mile and yeah. And, so yeah. he's he's been doing great, and so we need to get some more um, young, speedy guys to come help him um, um, so that they could all mature as athletes. Mm-hmm. What we want is just for for these athletes to reach their potential, and we see it as our job to. Make sure that they're living comfortably and provided for, so that they could, so that they can go out and just do what what they're training for. Mm-hmm. And along those lines, as someone who, I mean, you were in at the ground level with Mammoth Track Club, and over the last eighteen years, we've seen a lot more groups pop up around yeah. the country. You know, shooting off the hip, Hanson's Brooks, Zap Fitness, uh, now Bowerman Hoka Nazi Elite, Bowerman Track yeah. Club, Oregon Project, like all of yeah. these groups. Um, and I think in a lot of ways they emulated what you set up here. I mean, how how cool is that? I think it's it's amazing to be able to to lead like that and to really show people. I think our our sport is so ego based, and everybody just wants to be hidden, doing their own thing, and realizing that wow, collaboration really does bring the best out of out of everybody. And being able to show up at practice on any given day, even if you're having a little bit of an off day, you have to get a hundred percent out of whatever, whatever you have on, on that given day. And I think that that's the beauty of showing up every morning and meeting together and grinding through the hardest days so that even on race day, when things are, are looking a little grim and maybe you're only feeling 75% or what if the odds are against you, you can still go out and fulfill that goal. And I think training with, with a team really helps get that perspective. Mm-hmm. Not to keep beating on the on the Mammoth Track Club, but what is it about Mammoth Lakes that has kept you here for the last eighteen years? As various other athletes have come and gone. Yeah, I think that uh, altitude is is definitely um, a an edge for endurance athletes, and um, and I've seen studies from the U.S. Olympic Committee that um, that shows that the longer that you stay here, the the longer you can hold that altitude benefit when you go down to to race at sea level, and um and so for me moving to altitude, even in Alamosa, Colorado, you could talk about the physiological effects of your body transporting hemoglobin and um, and oxygen um, through your red blood cells to to activate and and nourish your working muscles, mm-hmm. and there's all this science behind it. But I love living in the mountains. To me, it's a, you start with this simple lifestyle and then you just fill in all the things that bring you joy and the things that you like, the pastimes you enjoy, paddleboarding on the lakes, reading on the deck and, and cooking for neighbors and friends. Um, and so that, that to me is, is the joy of living here. That science says it's good for me as a professional distance runner, but I really just love living in this community. It feels small and really supportive, but on a bigger scale, we can get f- 45,000 people coming, coming into town on any given weekend. Um, Fourth of July coming up, um, summer activities almost every single weekend in the summer. There's some, um, festival going on. The reggae festival is probably my daughter's favorite. Um, so there's just fun things going on all the time, events going on that keep it, keep it fun and exciting. Culture, culture gets here because of the events that the town and the mountain put on. And when did you and Andrew decide that this was going to be it for you? Gosh, 
You know, I think right when we right when we moved here, we started right. looking for for houses, and that felt pretty permanent. And then, um, and then him taking over the club, and then having our our daughter seven years ago. So there's all these things that just keep us committed and, and rooted here. But I I feel like um, the community has been so supportive of of us as individuals and the Mammoth Track Club that we're now in a in a place where we also are very supportive and try to give back the best that we can to events and um, and the town itself. So we feel very very rooted here because we're so connected with with people and organizations in mm-hmm. the area. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about you and your career. What keeps you going? Oh gosh. Um you know, I just, I, I really believe that running is such a great way to challenge, to challenge us and, um, and to, to, to add that, um, difficulty to our life in a very controlled way so that we can deal with challenge and adversity. Um, and, and I love that. I love getting to the crux of a workout. I go out hard in, in races and workouts because I want to suffer early on so I can find ways to get through it. And to me, it's always been a game, like just this playful pursuit of seeing how I can, how badly I can hurt and then what tools I can learn to get through it. And as I've, as I've learned over the years, um, that there's always something new emerging and I don't ever want, you know, you have your like angel and devil on your shoulders. And my, my goal is to like flex that angel and have her sprout bigger wings and see that little devil atrophy on my, Mm -hmm. on my, on my other shoulder. And so that's what, that's what keeps it fun because when, when I can handle these challenges and running and continue working it, you know, it's not like you have to keep practicing positivity and, um, and getting the best out of yourself, that if I can do that and running continuously, then when something shows up in life, I feel like it's a breeze to get through it. And it could be something as simple as breaking a yolk in the, in the skillet in the morning when I'm trying to make that perfect egg. Um, I can handle that with a little more grace than I used to, to handling traffic when I'm going down to, to Los Angeles, to be able to handle that a little better. And something as big as losing a family member that it, it works on all, all, um, on all levels and running was able to teach me that. So I want to just keep, keep flexing that muscle and, and making sure that I can stay upbeat and positive. And it's not being naive. It's Mm -hmm. not like, pretending like it's not raining, raining cats and dogs outside or, or pretending that everything's fine when it's not, it's being proactive and having a growth mindset that in, in the, on the other side of this challenge is going to be a stronger part of me that emerges. Not to put you on the spot, but I'm going to put you on the spot. Go for it. Do you, (laughs) do you ever see that stopping with running anytime soon or is, or is that just not even on your radar? Yeah, it has, it doesn't even, it doesn't even cross my mind unless someone asks, Mm -hmm. um, to stop because I love, I love the movement. I love one foot in front of the other in its simplest form. And I also love when it gets really complex and, and sophisticated and you have to work a little harder to, to get through. So I love it. I love it now that my seven year old daughter can join me. um, for a mile or two. It seems so fun to share that time together and how conversational she is during it, during our, our runs together, making me realize that me and my teammates have done a really good job of showing her that it's social and fun. It's not punishment or um, or painful that we're giving her a good perspective on sports as well. Mm-hmm. And on the competitive side of it for you, what continues to excite you. Right. Cause I'm never going to run to 19 again. So why, I mean, that's, we're always looking for improving. So I think at the time in my life where I had to realize 
what am I like? Ask myself, why am I doing this? Because I'm not ever going to be as fast as I as I was right. two decades ago, and just having that that asking myself those hard questions. And I just love the pursuit of 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 challenging myself. I just think that that is it's such a it's such a fun game to me every time that I'm out there and going out and feeling that that competitiveness, which is so hard to be in a race where you want to be up there, but you're now you're back, you're back here with, um, with some, some of the slower folks. But I love that sense of community in racing that's, um, that in, in Mammoth, I have that community with my teammates, but when I'm going to races, it just opens up to the, to the masses where you have so many people from different walks of life. They have different motivations, um, different abilities, uh, come from different countries, different socioeconomic statuses, different religions, and you're all there, um, prepared and, and driven to go the distance together. And I think that's a lot to celebrate. Does it ever get frustrating for you? When, like you just said, you want to be up here, but the reality is now you're just, you're still up there, but yeah. you're, you're just a little further back than yeah. where Dina of 219 Yeah, I was. think I'm amused by it. Okay. I, I'm more amused by it. I'm pretty easy on myself. Like I, um, I, I'm not that uptight when it, when it comes to that. I, but I've had to have that reality check at, at one point and mm-hmm. you can read it. Um, you can read it in my, in my book, that, that hard moment of realizing, wow, like I'm, like, what do I do with myself now? Do I retire? Is there something else I should be doing? But I still felt that that drive to get out and and push push myself and have the obligations to help my teammates out. That is that's kind of what helped me get reconditioned and refocused on the sport was mm-hmm. knowing that I wanted to be here for my younger teammates to help push and challenge them in workouts. And when their their little devil on their shoulder is telling them they can't get up the hill, I'm I'm there to reinforce the the right the right mindset to get them up that hill. That was a perfect segue because I was about to say that this entire mindset that you speak of, this philosophy, seems like you've condensed it now into this book, which just came out in April. Yeah. It was the hardest thing. It was the the hardest finish line to get to was, was, was getting to the end of this book. It was a a really challenging, write. I think I might've been a little easier on myself if I wrote about how to master mile repeats at altitude or something, (laughs) it might've been an easier, an easier process, but it was a hard three years of writing. And the last years was probably the most, last year was probably the most intense year of my life. Just Mm. sitting in front of the computer at 4am and not getting off the computer until 11pm and Andrew's being dad and coach and advocate in the community and race director and all these things while I'm just sitting in front of a computer having, having like no social interaction whatsoever missing out on the things. There was times that I had my little pity party, like I don't get to do anything fun and I can't even run right now. And I can't have friends and family over for dinner because I can't even make it to the grocery store to get groceries. And so I was like feeling, feeling the pain of, of writing this, but, um, almost sounds like professional running to a certain degree. Yes. It's just having that discipline when you, when you're, when you are pursuing something that you want to be excellent in, um, it, it definitely takes a hundred percent of your of your focus, and that's what I that's what I knew it needed for me to to be able to produce a, a good book. And I 
I couldn't thank my my team. As with everything, it takes mm-hmm. a village to get this done. Whether it's Andrew holding down the fort and or um, or my co-author challenging me to to write harder and stronger words, or my editor demanding us to to double the length of the book and then and then cut it back down again. Like just it was hard, so hard. But I feel very proud of the of the of the final product. Let's take it back to the start line. You'd mentioned it was sort of a three year project in the making. When did the idea for the book come to be? So Andrew and I in 2015 mm-hmm. uh, broke ground on the, on the or finished the completion of our track. Um, we have a track down at 7,000 feet. gorgeous. Yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's a beautiful oh, great. facility. Yeah. So we're very proud of it. Uh, 31,000 uh, tires were saved from California landfills into the pour of the track and the, and the AstroTurf infield. Um, so um, the synthetic turf infield. And so we feel very proud of that project. And we had a ribbon cutting and Michelle Hamilton, who's the co-author mm-hmm. of my book was at the ribbon cutting. And we were sitting at my dining room table one night and talking. And she just kept saying like, well, not many people have that perspective or would see something that way. And we were talking about running. And so Andrew said, you know, I've been trying to tell Dina, she should write a book about her, about her perspective and, and, um, and her, her career. And I said, who wants to read about my career? It's like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to throw a bio out there. And you didn't want to write a history book. Yeah, yeah. And it just seemed so, it just seemed so boring and unexciting and that we got talking more and it was, it all came back to mindset and that kind of that insatiability of just continuing to want to improve. And, and the second a race is over, there's like a very quick pat on the back and then what's next. And, um, kind of like a junkie, a running junkie. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we ended up saying, you know what, let's, let's see what happens if we work together. And so we started, um, inter- like Michelle would ask questions and interview and, um, and I would do free rights on being adopted, on having cancer on winning races, on losing races, on college, on youth track, and just free riding and free riding. She kept giving me assignments and assignments, and the assignments were piling up because I wasn't writing fast enough. And then we finally started putting something together, and, ga- and then we found a, a literary agent and and it felt like we had a pretty good draft going into Penguin Random House. And, um, and then our editor, Kevin Doughton there, he's the, the senior editor at Penguin said like so much red on that first draft. It was like everything was red circles, notes in the margins. And we were like, oh no, like we thought this was good. Now we look back on it. We're like, that was crap. <laughs> that so, sounds like the first magazine article so, I've ever yeah. written for Jonathan Beverly at yes. Running Times. It came back and it was just a sea of red. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah, maybe I'm I not doing? cut out for this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I chose the I wrong job. Feeling. Yeah. And and so, but then you revisit things and mm-hmm. it that's what it takes to get to to something really, really good. So it was, it was hard, but it was, it was amazing. It was an amazing, amazing process. And all the whole time, um, I just kept coming back to the, the people that were around me, like, my God, I, I had a successful running career because I had great coaches and an amazing agent and great teams to train, to train with. And the same was with this book. I had a great editor, a great co-author, a supportive husband. It was just like, man, it is amazing what you can do Very when you're parallel uplifted. processes. Yes, absolutely. Was it cathartic for you? It was. Oh my God. I cried so much. I'm a very emotional person anyway, because I think I, I've come to terms with that my life is very rich and emotionally charged. And I feel like proud of that, that I can um, be surrounded by things that, that evoke such emotion in me. 
But I cried through so much of this process. And my co-author would probably get so uncomfortable on some of these conversations because I'm a totally ugly crier. Mm. So we'd be Skyping and we'd be like five hours into this Skype session and she would just ask a question that just struck a nerve and I would just start. Yeah. And um, I think one of the hardest, one of the hardest things to do was... um, my, both Michelle and my editor thought, you know, your adoption has to, it's such a big deal. There has to be something in here. Um, we're going to, we're going to work through it. Like I, I need you to, for this week to write and just keep writing and to go. I went for a, a run, which I felt like I was cheating to go for a run, but I was just trying to, to like think and meditate through being adopted as an infant. And the only thing, like I had nothing. I was like, had you ever given it that kind of thought before? No, yeah. no, never. And I just thought, you know, my biological um, mother was 14 years old when she had me. And the only thought that I had, and I don't know much more about my biological parents, but the only thought that I had is she must have been so brave and courageous to just like, foster me for those nine months and then just hand me over to a family that was more capable of taking care of me. And that was my only thought. It was so strange. It was really strange. So my adoption really isn't in the book. There, Like it's touched on just like I thought my talent was, was, um, was a, a trait similar to freckles and having blonde hair, not that it was something that could be cultivated. Um, I, I just thought it was a, a trait that you had. And so mm-hmm. I was talented in running and I didn't know the scope of my talent because I was adopted and I didn't have parents to say like, oh, they were a national champion in swimming or rode the Tour de France. So I have these superhuman lungs. You couldn't connect the dots. Yeah. It was just like, wow, this is cool. I'm good at this and let's see how far we can take it. So when, how old were you when you found out that you were adopted? I always knew. Always knew. I always knew because my parents read me this book, Why Was I Adopted? Like oh. probably every night of my okay. childhood. And the message in it was, it wasn't that you were given up, you were chosen. So I always felt like a special child that, mm. man, all these kids out there are stuck with the, their parents are, are stuck with them. And maybe they have regrets at having children at all, but my parents got to choose me. And I always thought it was cool. And I even made fun of my sister. Um, maybe that's why she goes to therapy so much um, that when we were growing up, because uh, my parents had her four years later um, as a little bit of an accident. And, um, and so I not only reinforced that she was an accident, but that they were stuck with her and they had chosen me, which is so evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm totally going to hell for that. <laughs> I think you'll be okay. Yeah. And we have a wonderful relationship. So, Yeah. I would say now a lot of people know you as Dina Castor, the marathoner, but to go back um, through your collegiate career, maybe right. at Arkansas and then through your cross country days before you even stepped foot on the line of a marathon. Right. It was, it was, it was fascinating. And I'll, I'll say, thank goodness my parents never listened to me when I kept telling them to throw away all the boxes of like press clippings and stuff from 11 years old all till now. And I'm, I would say like, free up room in your garage, just get rid of this. And they never did. And boy, as soon as I knew I was going to write this book with Michelle, I went down to, 
to Agora and raided their, raided their garage. And I came home and I put everything in chronological order and bound it together so that while I was writing, I could have quick references. Um, I wanted to do it off of memory first, but as it turns out, my memory wasn't that great. So I actually really needed those, those press clippings to, to reinforce times and even quotes before Mm -hmm. and after certain races and was able to do that because I had all those, all those hard copies. Did that ignite any kind of spark in you as an athlete today who's still pursuing races to go back and be like, wow, this is what I was doing like in high school and this is like what I was doing in college when I was falling in love with the sport and yeah. realizing that I had some potential in it? Yeah, I think, the, I think the most fascinating part of it was trying to get every time I was processing a race through the book writing process, I was processing it through a mature mind mm-hmm. as opposed to the mind of the of the girl that was running it decades ago. So that was really, really a, a big challenge to, to see like really in the face of disappointment when I'm like, oh, I feel so sorry for you, you know? And you're like, oh yeah, honey, it's going to be okay. It's just one race. Like I wanted to be there for myself. Um, but in those moments of, of realizing how you can go from confident on the start line to completely crushed in the span of a 30 minute race is mind blowing to me. And, and to be able to see that was so sad and to see how crushed and and defeated I felt after some of those disappointing races. But then, um, at that time, I was thinking that being disappointed meant I was a disappointment and I was a failure. Yeah. I had failed at my goal. And so I was a failure. And it was so interesting for so many years to have that perspective. And it took Coach Hill saying, listen, I'm glad you're disappointed. If you're happy with today's race, I would have thought something was wrong with you. Being disappointed means you care. It means you're invested. It means you expect more out of yourself. You want more out of yourself. So let's go back to the drawing board. And he says, like, Rome wasn't built in a day. Let's get back to the drawing board and get back to work. And I was like, my God, that's brilliant. Disappointment could actually be a motivator and a, a driver. And you see that a lot in, um, in a lot of professional athletes of a variety of sports. They have one disappointing performance and their next one, they knock it out mm-hmm. of the park because they were driven by, um, by that disappointment. So that was fascinating to me. And it really helped me in other, other things like fear, meeting fear with courage or feeling, um, a crushing grief from a, from a loss and realizing, well, that only feels so bad because you loved so hard and that felt amazing. And so really trying to redefine what some of these harder emotions are and giving them more of a, more of a gentle definition so that they could, they could help you. Mm-hmm. They could actually be a, a driver and a motivator, a springboard and giving you more of a growth mindset instead of that fixed fixed mindset of being a failure. Right. Yeah. Let's hit pause there for a second. We've mentioned, or you've mentioned, I should say, Coach Joe V. Hill a few times now. Um, he's no longer your coach. He's still coaching a handful of people. I believe he's he's got to be 80 now or close he's to 88. 88. 88 years, years old. old. Um, Amazing. And, and if you see him, he still goes to track meets. He still goes to races. He still moves with such conviction, speaks with such conviction. Talk a little bit about your relationship with Coach V. Hill and when that started. Oh man, uh, it, my relationship with him started right after college when I was introduced to him. Um, Mylon Donnelly, who's the coach at KU, um, he, he gave me Coach Veal's number because I said, you asked me if I gave it everything that I, that I knew I could, I could give. And I don't know what that means. So I went to the library and did research and, and is, being at altitude and and training with teams, like did I need to be born in the Rift Valley in order to have success at this? And he said, 
I don't know the answer to your question, but I know who's someone who will. And he gave me the number of Coach V Hill. And I was so inspired after five minute conversation. How can you not be? Here I was in this sport for a couple decades and graduating from college. And you think you know everything when you're graduating from college. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to try something new because I've been running for most of my life. And I think I've reached the the end of, of my potential here. And, um, and with that one phone call, I'm like, I can't believe I've been in a sport so long and know nothing about it. I would, I didn't understand anything he said. He was talking about mitochondria and your adrenal cortical reserves and, and cortisol and adrenaline and adaptation. I'm like, what on earth is this man talking about? And it got me so excited to like just learn from him. I packed my bags immediately and drove my Jeep across the country to Colorado to train under him and just opened myself to learn whatever he was going to teach me. And he's still teaching me today. He's amazing. What are the biggest lessons that he's taught you? I think... They've, most of them haven't even been about running Um, because he's a, for a guy that has a PhD in, in um, physiology, he's very psychological and very uplifting. And I just saw him time and time again, we would be somewhere and he's like, has no time at all, but will give it to anybody. He has you know, he's not an abundantly wealthy man. Not many coaches um, are are swimming in hundred dollar hundred dollar bills. But he was um, he was quick to buy anyone who walked into the cafe a cup of coffee. Just sit down, let's have a chat. And um, and so I saw that ev- like every time he just gave so much. He studied for decades to earn his PhD, but shares that information with anybody on in a heartbeat. And so all this education that it took so much time and, and, and resources to, to gain and he shares it so freely. Um, and that's amazing to me. So I feel that he helped me shape my life philosophy. If you have it, share it because I, I've seen from him that all that we possess, whether it's time or knowledge or money or food, that the value of it increases when you're sharing it with somebody. Mm-hmm. I love that. And he's still. At 88 years old, I remember one of my last conversations with him was in Eugene before the Olympic trials a few years ago. He's like, yeah, I still get up at 4 a.m. every day. Does and his push-ups the, and his sit-ups. And read and the eating. latest research and yes, he kind of does. all that stuff. It's amazing. He's like he, that. He has such a fire in him that has never waned. It's Which amazing. Is, yeah. And if you talk like – I. Within five minutes of talking to the guy, I was like, this is the most amazing man I've ever yeah. met in my life. It's yeah. pretty pretty incredible. Were there any other women training with you when you moved out to Alamosa? Not in Alamosa. No. I was in a in a in an all male all male team. Yeah. So it wasn't until you moved out here yeah. to Mammoth that, that we had that I had some estrogen yeah. <laughs> to balance out to balance out all the men. Yeah. And that's different. It's different type of training. Cause I actually feel a little more self-conscious when I'm with women because men I can tease that I'm going to kick their butts or, you know, get, you know, you be outwardly feisty with. And with the women, I was a little self-conscious of, of doing that. I would tease a, tease a little bit, but, um, but just a little more mellow with, with women running that we'll run together. And it's more like, um, like together time, like we're having a tea party and being mm-hmm. able to talk. And, and I love that. I love the friendships that come out of those runs. Um, honing in on kind of that period of time in your career. This is when I was first starting to gain an interest in the sport. And you hadn't even run a marathon yet. To me, you were Dina Drossen 
the American cross country killer, basically. Yeah, I love like that was that was like your thing. Just talk about. I mean, cross country doesn't get talked about enough here. It's still my favorite discipline in running. Just talk a little bit about your relationship with cross country racing and training. I I think just that sense of exploration that is just innate in in some some of us that to be able to hit a trailhead and explore and explore somewhere new to really use all your senses to get a sense of your surroundings. The the track sometimes can be a little mundane. Um, it has its purpose of, of speed and agility and um, being able to um, to produce the fastest times. But to me, it feeds my soul to be there running on the terrain and read, trying to read the terrain and, and bend into the turns and hop over the rocks without ruining your stride and, um, or any, anything disrupting momentum. Like I love that, that game of running in nature and doing that, whether it's running on the trails out our back door or whether that's in a cross country race where you get to elbow a few people at the, at the sides of you. Um, that to me is running at its, at its purest form. I absolutely have a love affair with cross country. And how did those skills translate to the marathon? Because you went on to win an Olympic medal. Uh, you broke the American, still have the American record, um, ran sub 220 and just, you know, performed at a, at a great level in the marathon. I've got to imagine some of that translated over. Definitely cross country, cross country training and racing was a part of, of all of my most successful seasons as a runner, whether that was 10K on the track or nailing a marathon. Um, every single, every single one of those finer performances in my career came when I incorporated cross-country season. And Andrew brought that to my attention when he started coaching me after Terrence left, that he was very good at not intruding on um, on the other coaches that I had. He was just supportive of everything, just just allowed me to buy in a hundred percent. And it wasn't until he started coaching me that he would say, you know, there was a few things in here that I felt we were going in the wrong direction, never gave me any sense of, of that. But he said that all of my most successful seasons were when I incorporated cross country. So there was the first year he coached me, I ran, um, U.S. cross country nationals. I made the, my 19th world team. I went to, um, I went to the LA Marathon and ran the LA Marathon. Two days later, hopped on a train to Bidgosh, Poland and ran the World Cross Country Championships. And later that summer went to, um, went to Moscow to run the marathon in the world championship. So it was just so, it was such a fun year to just be like, Hey, let's, let's put it all out there and, and enjoy. It was just like, I remember us always saying, why not? Like, well, why not? Why not do it? Like, what, what do we have to lose here? This is, this is fun now. We can just do bucket list things. So. And that I wasn't think, that long ago. I mean, you no. were, you were what, 40, I think when you ran I, that marathon in yeah, LA. Yep. Yeah. I had just turned 40, I think. So yeah. it's, it's like getting back to your youth a little bit yeah. as you become a master's runner. And it was playful. It was just, again, being with my teammates and they brought my speed out of me and, and I brought the endurance out of them. So it was a good, a good sharing of, of strengths. Let's talk a bit about the marathon as I touched on earlier. I think that's what most people listening to this know you for. Was that a scary transition for you to move up in distance? It wasn't a scary transition because I was using it as a tool to get stronger for the 10K. It would have been scary if I thought I was, if I was changing my identity as, as a, as an athlete, but I thought, what else can I do to get really strong in the 10K? And I thought the marathon was that it was going to make me more enduring. Um, and even, 
um, what I found is that once you run a marathon, who cares if you fade in a 10K? So it made me a riskier runner on the track because I wasn't scared to hurt. After the hurt of a marathon, I wasn't scared to to hurt in the shorter distances. So I thought that was a fascinating lesson. Yeah, that's really interesting. So when you moved up, you still thought of yourself as as a 10K racer mm-hmm. on the track. I wouldn't this, even call myself a marathoner. Yeah, I was, was a 10K just, racer using the marathon to strengthen. To strengthen yourself yeah. for 10K. Yeah. When, did, when did you consider yourself a marathoner? Or do you still not consider yourself a marathoner? I think I consider myself a marathoner because I, I, I know I, I feel sorry for the people that say they run a few days a week, but they don't call themselves runners. It's like, no, you are. If you, if you have a pair of running shoes and you put one foot in front of the other and have a little airtime at any point during the week, I think you're a runner, you're a runner. So, um, so I definitely consider myself a marathoner, but the marathon is never perfected. I feel like whenever you get out there, you're going to learn a lesson. Um, and usually you learn it the hard way. <laughs> what were your initial feelings after your first marathon? Well, of course, when I crossed the finish line, I was like, I am never doing that again. I think it doesn't everybody say that. Or... I know I know, Meb did. <laughs> yeah, I am never doing that again. It was, it was such a suffer fest and for so much longer than I ever imagined. Um, I think the hardest thing going into the marathon was trusting the training. And you probably come across this with, with, a lot of your athletes in their in their first marathon, you're like, well, I've never run 26.2 miles. And even my long runs that might have been 20 miles aren't as fast as what I want to my goal pace How for this race. Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And Coach Veal just said, you gotta trust the training with the with the magic of tapering and the the combining of all those weeks, they building, building and building on top of training. each other. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, you just have to trust it. And I was like, all right, I trust you. So I'm going to trust it. And I got on the starting line and it hurt so bad. By the time I was going through Central Park, New York City was my Mm -hmm. first marathon. And it was only, um, well, what would it be? A little more than two months after September 11th attacks. So it was a pretty patriotic and emotional race. I always, I always, um, from that race have learned to find significance to run with when I'm running on a course, um, whether it's a, a track race, a cross country race or, or a road race that I always try to find a, a deeper purpose to be out there. Cause it's always going to get to a point where it's hurting and you have to question why you're out there yeah, or find your why. try to compromise your goal a little bit because you don't want to continue, continue suffering. And, um, and so finding that purpose every time, um, after this September 11th, because I ran with emotion that whole race. Fast forward a few years to Athens brought home an Olympic medal. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? It was fantastic in the moment because I was fulfilling a big goal. Um, we had been working so hard, um, for the past four years, but that summer, um, specifically, I hired three men to, to punish me every day. And we, they put me through the ringer and I woke up every morning thinking, I can't believe how good I feel. I can't believe my body's doing this again. It was such an amazing experience. Um, to just keep nailing workouts and, and to have my, have my body respond in such a good way. I was sleeping great, eating great, feeling great. Nothing like we were just on this high all summer. It was so amazing. And Meb had a very similar, similar experience. Um, he couldn't hire three men to, to run with him, but he did have a, a cyclist that, and his name was Mario, but a cyclist that was riding next to him all summer going through. It was not me for those of you listening at home. I don't think I could keep up with Meb on a bike. I've tried. Yeah, on a bike at eight thousand feet when he's climbing hills. Yeah, and no. 
Yeah, but we had a really amazing, amazing summer that we just kept working. We we moved workouts up to the Lakes Basin, which is 9,000 feet altitude. So we were doing two-mile repeats up at the lakes, and that was just so punishing. Um, they burned, like just that deep burn in your chest where you're tasting blood in your throat and maybe even coughing for a few hours after the workout. And we adapted and got stronger and faster every week. We were just, I was just amazed at how much our bodies can handle when we are treating it well, like with, with optimism, with good food, with nurturing rest and, um, and lots of massages and ice baths, but just how responsive we can be to, to that type of growth. And, um, and so it was an amazing summer of preparations. And so to be able to, to go through this race and I had a super conservative race tactic because it was 101 degrees when we showed up in the town of Marathon, really conservative race tactic to be able to to go out there. And I just wanted to be the last one to overheat. That was my, like trying to keep my edge off, you know, to keep it light and the conversation in my head, light. like just be the last person to overheat. You'll be fine. Yeah. And in a way it was validation for Mammoth Track Club with you and Meb both bringing home medals Absolutely. that year. I was already back in Mammoth for Meb's race, but we don't have a television. So I watched it at Meb's house um, with some other people. I don't know why we had a party at Meb's <laughs> house when he was in Athens racing, but we we were there and the phone kept ringing off the hook. And I finally just like unplugged his phone and then everybody's phone started ringing. And I'm like, nobody look at their phone, but something amazing must be happening because we were on a little bit of a delay um, with the with the coverage and we went nuts such a cool story we went absolutely nuts we opened champagne we left dirty champagne glasses in his sink <laughs> for him to wash when he got home <laughs> just just so he could know how much fun we had watching him there it was amazing it was so amazing that's great um, fast forwarding a, even more um, to your American record 219 yeah. which is yet to be broken was that Highlight, well, I shouldn't say the highlight of, yeah. of your career, but was that one of your biggest marathoning moments? I think it was, I think it was, it was definitely one of my, one of my sweetest. It yeah. was, um, it was, it was definitely on my radar of wanting to break 220 after I got the, I broke Joan's record, which just felt so surreal anyway, to have this person that you look up to for so long. I still do. And to, to be able to, to break that barrier, I was just dumbfounded. Like, my God, this is amazing. She called me right after the race to congratulate me. She's a class act. Um, but running under 219, I think I was the fourth, the fourth woman to ever run under 220. Paula Radcliffe, um, Catherine Dereba mm-hmm. and, um, oh, Japanese girl getting her to, uh, uh it's at the tip of my ta- tongue Could it be too. Takahashi? Uh, oh. Shoot. And, okay. It's not going to come to me. That's all right. I'm pretty sure it's not going to come to me. I, I was giving myself a little pause mm-hmm. to see if it would pop in, but it's not, um, but um, so I was the fourth fourth person to run under two twenty in a time where not many people did it. Is all I was all I was trying to say. Now people are doing. Now women are running that fast on almost any great course. So um, so it felt it felt wonderful. I'm totally surprised that it has lasted this long, considering that we've had such a great resurgence of of, of marathon runners. Um, but I don't expect it to last much longer. I think that there's um, there's such a great um, synergy and drive with marathoning right now. And 
um, and women believe they can do it and they will. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited to see that, that race unfold. Who do you think has the best shot? I don't know. Um, a lot of women have come they're, close. Yeah. They're knocking on the door. Two twenty one, two twenty two. Now you got Amy Craig who just did that. Yep. Jordan Hasse, obviously. Yeah, and we just had the Bowerman Track Club up here for the last two months, getting ready for USA's, which was really fun. Really fun to have them um, have them over for dinner. They were a fun a fun group to to have down at the track when kids are playing soccer and I go up to the parents and have to brag like, do you know who's running around the track right now? These are, these are the best athletes yeah. in the US. Yeah. Do you know how many American records are on the track right now being, um, yeah, it was just, it was fascinating, fascinating um, to see, to see such general public using the facility and then having these power horses just looking so beautiful in their stride in the, in the first lane. So you got to think it's coming then. Absolutely. I definitely think it's coming. And I don't, I don't really believe the record is, is mine to own. Even when I ran that race, it was, it was such a benchmark. It was something, um, it was something that, that, that beacon, that carrot that just kind of brought the best out of me that day. Cause you put something really awesome out there and then you do everything in your power to, to reach it. So it was, it was that beacon for me then. And that's all it was like, that's, that's the moment that it mattered, the moment in in reaching the goal, and it hasn't mattered in the past 15 years. Yeah. Speaking of records, how about the women's world record in the marathon? Do you think that can be touched yeah. anytime soon? It hasn't. I really thought Mary Katani might... might Challenge it. Yeah, yeah, but now I think, I don't know if that, I think that window might have closed. Mm-hmm. Um, but she... But Mary Katani ran so well that I that I actually think she is breeding a belief in some of these younger marathoners that are coming up that oh wow it's actually it's, it's actually doable yeah yeah um, couple more things here. which seems insane of course it, like, no yeah. it's it's wild when you think about it because that's two one oh seven thirties and that's going to win a lot of half marathons around the absolutely, world absolutely absolutely and you you even look at I remember when Paula was moving up to the marathon because I competed against her in cross country a lot at the world world cross country championships and I thought there is no way this girl can run a marathon she defies everything a marathoner should be she's tall she's got really long legs she the runs on her toes she she's oh. got like all these um all these flailing like I just feel like her her um her flailing body uh, when she runs, but man, she made it look beautiful. A couple more things before we wrap up here. And you've touched on this a little bit over the course of this conversation, but who or what in running right now is really exciting you as a fan of the sport? Oh, man. Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I I was so impressed with Lopez Lamong at the U.S. Championships. I'm like, he is back. My gosh, that was so exciting. In a completely different event for him. Yes, yes. And I was just, and I saw him here running, um, running this summer thinking like, man, he looks really fit. Like I didn't get to really know what he was doing. I wasn't standing there timing them or anything, but I'm like, he looks really great. Like I haven't seen him look this smooth and, and fast in a long time. So I was like, my God, that is so great to see people have like a kind of a second birth in the, in the sport. Um, but I'll say, I mean, because the marathon is just where my eyes are right now that uh, I'm really excited about the fall that we're going to have, um, Chicago and New York marathons and on the heels of Shalane winning New York last year and Desiree winning, winning Boston this year. I'm really excited to continue seeing U.S. distance running on top of the podium. Okay. 
I'm going to pause on my last question to build off of that one. Will we see you at a marathon this fall? I, I think you'll see me, you'll definitely see me at Chicago and New York City as an ambassador to both mm-hmm. of those races, but I'm not going to be running a fall marathon. Okay. And just going back to the one that you did start earlier this year in Boston, take me through that day. I know you had to pull off the course early on. Actually, one of my one of my athletes who is also in the women's elite field and is a master's runner came into the tent not too long after you and she was feeling really bad about herself. And she's like, oh, there's DK under a blanket. Oh my God. Yeah. I guess it's I'm guessing not in bad company. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, when I when I saw the weather reports just the the week leading up, I'm like, sweet, make it as nasty as possible because I feel like my mind it's cross country weather. Yes. And my mindset is is strong to to handle that. Also I thought, you know, People are going to be complaining about it and overthinking it. And so even, even on the start line, when the rain was driving in our faces, I'm like, bring it on. And so I was just going to stay steady and like know that if I, um, if even if I'm in 10th or 15th place, that's the first 10 K that not everyone's going to make it to the, the next 10 K. But I was one of those people. I was like, no way. So I felt really, um, I felt kind of like duped. Like, how did I, how did I not respect this more? Like, Mm -hmm. why didn't I respect the weather a little bit more? But I was, I was shocked at my, how strong I was mentally and how my body physically shut down. I was completely stupefied by that. Like I run in the mountains. I run in blizzards. I love cold weather. I love hot weather. I love extremes. I, um, and so to, to be running and, at 10K, I already feel like my legs have been shot. Like they felt like those hard little pistons yeah. that you usually feel at mile 24, 25. But to feel that so early on, because you're running on cold muscles, and then to have my feel my body physically shut down, it was one of the scariest things. So I was hypothermic and got treated for about an hour in the mile 14 medical tents. And I was more sore that afternoon and for the next week than I've ever been after a marathon more sore after running 14 miles. It was crazy. I also ran Boston. I did finish. I have never been more sore after a marathon. And it wasn't, I'm some of the typical stuff that you'd expect after Boston. Most of it was in my shoulders and in my back because after I crossed the finish line, I was just shivering violently for a long time and and went hypothermic at that point. Um, And it stuck with me for a few days. And I've heard that story from quite a few people. Yeah. And I also remember, I don't know what, when you started running again after that race, but when I, I, I ran a week later because I wanted to run the Brooklyn half, um, a week later, I decided to go on an easy run with my teammates in Shady Rest on these beautiful pine, pine needle soft trails. And I had to stop. I had the sharpest pains shooting through my quads and my hips. I was like, what is going on? It yeah. was so wild. Yeah, that, that day got a lot of people. Yeah. Um, where were you when you had heard that Desiree won? The I race? was in the medical tent. So they had, they had a little, a little television there so I could see it happening. And it was so exciting. It was like, Oh my God. And I think everybody in there was just screaming at the television. You know, it was just awesome. And once you saw, um, once you saw the competitors drop off, you knew she kind of had it because mm-hmm. they were, you could tell that that kind of suffering isn't something you come back, right. come back from. Um, so it was, you knew she had it at, at that point that they fell off. And it was just, kind of celebrating that whole, the whole last couple of miles that she was running solo. Yeah. It was, it's, it's sort of like a, you know, bittersweet moment because your own day 
you know, had kind of gone to crap early yep. on. But same time, it's like first American woman to win a race in well yeah. over 30 years. It's a pretty cool thing. And I don't think there was anyone hungrier or more disciplined in that Boston win than Desiree has been over these years. She has, that has been her race every single year. And she made it her nemesis and, and she was finally victorious. So very well-deserved. Last thing I want to touch on, and you mentioned Joan Benoit Samuelson calling you after, you know, you broke the American record in the marathon. She's 60, if not, I mean, she's at least 60, maybe over 60. And she's still at it, still trying to break three hours for the marathon. And I think very similar to you, I think of you in, in a lot of the same you know, in, in a lot of the same light. I mean, I might've learned from her. Yeah. yeah I think, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've certainly followed in, in her footsteps a lot and she's still at it and you seem to be kind of in that same place in your own career. Obviously you're a lot younger yeah. than Joan, but you, you are both not sort by of, much, yeah, <laughs> but it's amazing. It yeah. is amazing that if you talk to her at any, any given time, like to just call her up, Hey, what are you doing? You know, I was thinking that I, on my 60th birthday, if you divide that, she just like crunches numbers in her head and comes up with these obscure reasons to like go, go chase another lofty goal. And it is so, she loves to, to create a story around why she's doing something, her why, her purpose. And it is so, it's so intoxicating to hear her speak so like say, that. How much does it inspire you to, yeah. to just keep going and, and see what could, you can do yeah. as you get older? And she still is having just as much fun now. So she has inspired me to be able to see that her energy and her drive is still very similar to when she was in her twenties and winning the first ever gold medal in the women's marathon. Pretty impressive. Well, thank you so much for the fun conversation. Thank you. And we'll have to do it again sometime soon. No doubt. All right, that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. Also, a big thank you to New Balance and Gooder for help making it possible. The Fresh Foam X More V4 from New Balance has quickly become a favorite for recovery runs on the road. It's packed with plenty of plush foam underfoot, making it a perfect option for when I'm feeling a little beat up and want some extra protection between my foot and the road. It's available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your favorite run specialty retail store. Gooder sunglasses are my favorite shades to run in, drive, walk the dog, and pretty much everything else that I do outside. They won't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they're super affordable with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. If you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two or three of Gooders and head over to gooder.com Mario and use the code Mario15 to get free shipping on your entire order. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He has produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to Chris Douglas for being my right-hand man and handling sponsorship sales, and Jeffrey Stern for managing the AM Shakeout social media accounts. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys have been crucial in helping keep things running smoothly here. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter, also called The Morning Shakeout, at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and in it, you'll get a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to lately that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got for this one. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.